Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. Each week we explore questions of faith, community, and identity. This is Jessica Chen Fing, and I'm your host for this season as we dive into issues of mental and relationship health. Thank you for joining us. I wanted to first just say hi to all of our listeners because this is our first episode for this season where I am the host. And as you probably know, we are diving into issues of mental and relationship health. So I'm really excited to have a very dear friend and colleague in the field with us today. I have Professor Migam Guan. Welcome, Migam. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So today, Migam and I, we're going to be chatting about what is Asian American Christian mental health. There are the, the racial and ethnic pieces here, our religious and spiritual identity, and how does that intersect with mental and relationship health and issues in our lives? So, Mika, why don't you tell us about who you are and what brought you into the work that you do now? Thanks, Jess. So, I am currently the director of clinical training at Fuller Seminary um, in the marriage and family therapy department. And this is my sixth year starting. What got me into the field was that um, in 2006, I had gone through a really difficult divorce and my life had kind of turned completely inside out. And it was at that point that I really started to reevaluate my life. Um, mm. Questions like, who has God created me to be and what has God purposed me to do? Um, so I actually went to therapy for the first time mm. uh, at that point. And I started realizing as I was doing my work and as I was processing um, through that pain, um, I realized that I was really dissatisfied with my career trajectory. At the time, I had spent like nine years in investment banking, mm -hmm. and my soul was just really dissatisfied. So as I retraced my steps, I realized, oh, the most satisfying moments were with people, <laughs> interacting with people. Uh, when I was on staff with university and um, as a youth pastor in a Korean church, like I really realized, like I realized I had such a passion for helping people and more specifically helping people heal emotionally. So I quit my job and started the MFT program at Fuller. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. And I mean, you and I both know as faculty in this field, a lot of people do that, right? Return to be, become therapists for like a second career because of life changes. Right. Yeah. Well, so... One of the things you and I are both, we care a whole lot about is this intersection of Asian American identity and our faith. And I know both you and I, when I had my practice, it was largely, if not entirely Asian American, and I, I know yours is too. Mm -hmm. So in your clinical work, what are some of the misconceptions that we as Asian American Christians tend to have around mental health? What do you see? Great question. So about 90% of my clients are Asian, Asian American, and I actually work with about 80% uh, couples. A lot of the misconceptions that I hear, it, it probably, you know, will be in the context of couples work, but one big misconception right off the bat is if I pray harder, if I was a better Christian, I wouldn't have mental health issues. Have you heard that before? Oh, yes. And I mean, not even in our clinical work, we hear it growing up in the church, right? Um, the emphasis, and I think that's where a lot of us absorb those 
since misconceptions. Right, right. And then another one that I hear is it kind of feeds into the stereotype of being uh, Asian, Asian American, but the the high functioning, high performing kind of perfectionistic uh, profile. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason why there is that stereotype is because so many of us live <laughs> into that stereotype. Mm-hmm. Um, but the misconception is that if we are performing well, we must not have any mental health issues. Mm. But I think that's a huge misunderstanding because I've seen so many high-functioning Asian-American Christians who perform at a high level because they've been trained to all their life. And so they just push through their emotions. They do their best to ignore um, some of the the deeper rumblings of their heart. Um, And sometimes their mental health issues aren't apparent because they're not functioning, because they are functioning well on Mm. the outside. Yeah. Yes. So it's both people as adults and children too, right? Some of the ways that in Asian American families, teachers might miss out on symptoms that young children have at school because they're getting the good grades and all those sort of things. I think this is generally speaking, right? Um, In terms of I'm having a hard time putting my words together simply because I think there's so much in the Asian American family experience that uh, shapes our achievement orientation. And then we, we live it out, whether in family life or work life. And then um, we don't stop to think about what's going on with us. Um, how's my well-being? And so we can perform well and don't have any clue that we could have mental health issues. Right. The person who's experiencing it may not realize, may not have the insight because on the outside they are performing well. So I've had a number of clients where they'll come in and they'll, they'll say, I just I know there's something wrong with me, but I can't put my finger on what it is because you know, I just got a promotion and, and, you know, I have two kids and I'm doing well. And, you know, so, so the outside world um, looks fine. And then as we continue talking, what's actually really interesting is that they don't meet the, the DSM criteria for depression. Mm-hmm. So, so for the diagnostic manual that we use as therapists, um, there are nine metrics. You kind of have to meet five of them, um, uh, five out of the nine. And, they don't actually meet it yeah. because those metrics are looking for uh, ways that they are not performing well in their daily functioning, mm. but they are. <laughs> yeah. So it almost feels like they don't have the luxury of shutting down. They don't have the luxury of knocking it out of bed or not doing well at work. They actually don't feel like they have a choice. Mm. Um, so they just continue and they just push through. But yeah. Clearly, they are depressed. Could we um, venture off a little bit around this? And what are some of those, I guess, symptoms that you would see that aren't traditional depression symptoms? Sure. So the traditional ones, the nine of the nine would be depressed mood, um, issues with sleep, either too much or too little, um, 
loss of interest in things they used to be interested in, um, feelings of guilt, feelings of worthlessness, uh, lack of energy, poor mm. concentration, poor appetite, um, or actually either end of the spectrum, eating too much or not eating enough. Mm -hmm. Sometimes emotional eating gets in there. And then what we would call psychomotor agitation or retardation. So two ends of the spectrum, you either are going to feel like an energizer bunny where there's this restlessness inside, mm -hmm. or you feel like you're kind of walking through molasses. Mm -hmm. And then the last one is suicidal ideation. Those are the nine. Okay. <laughs> wow. You're really good at recalling them. <laughs> and then, um, but, but the thing is, those are all outward performance oriented signs. So the way that I've seen it more in my clients is asking these other questions, almost like these internal existential struggles of who am I? What am mm -hmm. I doing with my life? Is this meaningful? Does my life have purpose? You know, yeah. this deep sense of unrest and dissatisfaction that kind of colors their overall experience, but, but they can't quite put their finger on why they're dissatisfied because everything on the outside is going so well. Yeah. So I would actually say that I was probably um, going through that, even though I was going through my divorce, which was an outward issue, mm -hmm. clearly. But what that did was that kind of unearthed and opened up all of these inner struggles that I already had. Yeah. Wow. So I'm wondering about when we think about these internal struggles, do you have thoughts about where faith, or Asian-Americanness plays into those struggles? Like if you have any thoughts about our racial identity and spiritual identity as it interacts with maybe internal depression that we're unaware of. I think that our Asian-American culture, um, as well as perhaps even the perceived racist notions of how an Asian American should be, uh -huh. so playing into the model minority myth. Yeah. Um, and then definitely the pressures that we feel from our church. Mm. <laughs> um, all of those are actually just, uh, it almost sets us up for being perfectionistic. Yeah. Um, that there are these pressures of performing these expectations that if we are a good daughter, if we are a good student, and if we are a good Christian, then our life should be about success and therefore we should be happy. Mm, but yeah. it doesn't quite work that way. Um, you know, the, I'm sure, you know, people know that the suicide rates um, among Asians and Asian Americans here in the States and also in Asia are so high and it's these students that are getting the top grades. Yeah. So clearly the success is not a measure of how we're doing inside. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I appreciate what you said about um, model minority myth. And also, um, while I think there is high suicide rates, both among Asian Americans here and with Asians abroad, I think to highlight that piece of post-immigration to the U.S., what having a bicultural identity, having a marginalized identity, what that does to our mental health and well-being too, mm -hmm. um, the sort of pressures on Asian American family life. And in the, the health disparities research, I, there was this one national um, study on Asian Americans' health that uh, those who are 
after immigration, the longer people stay, the worse their health becomes. And so anyways, I think these are just, it, it matches the research data, the mm -hmm. things that you're seeing in your clinical practice. Um, yeah, so thank you for talking about that. And Jess, I, yeah. I would like to also add, like, I think um, we, uh, we don't talk about racism as much as I think would be helpful. Uh -huh. um, so I believe that racism has a much stronger influence in our day-to-day -day life than we realize. Yes. Um, so for example, um, if our parents work really hard because they own a restaurant or they have um, a dry cleaners or, you know, and, and they're working really hard and all we ever hear them say is, I want you to do well in school. <laughs> I want you to make lots of money and be successful. And I want you to speak perfect English. Yeah, you might actually understand that more as, oh, that's such the Asian culture. Yeah. Um, but I also, I mean, recently I've been wondering if we were to see our parents and their experience as immigrants through the lens of racism, mm -hmm. it might actually help us understand where they're coming from. So uh, we could actually open up our understanding um, to consider that their advice to us may be more of a reaction because they don't want their children to go through what they're going through, suffering, yeah. you know, racist remarks and um, criticism and um, even threats. You know, they don't want their children to experience racism like they yeah. do. Yeah, I love that reflection. And, and this is an encouragement to our readers. If, if you don't already know the history and legacy of your parents or grandparents or whatever generation immigration story and whatever experiences that former generations had around race in America, I'd encourage you to, to look into that. Our next episode, we are going to be talking about racial identity explicitly. But one thing we know is, especially in the Asian American church, there's not a lot of conversation around it. So it's just not in our direct awareness, right? Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. I think that would, that would really help to know the historical context and to know the experiences that previous generations have had here in America, and then how that all kind of trickles down into our experience. Yes, for sure. Well, how about, were there any other misconceptions that you were thinking about that we might have regarding mental health? Mm, oh, there's so many. <laughs> I, yeah. The idea of perfectionism that we were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I think that some people really um, hold it as a good thing that they are successful and they are perfectionistic and that's a good thing. Um, and while I, as a Christian, believe in excellence, I actually don't believe in perfectionism. And so the way that I see perfectionism from a psychological model is that it is a coping strategy that we have to combat our own anxiety. Mm, yeah. But when I see it as a negative coping, it kind of starts making sense. So we feel anxious and we have this desire to control the outcome um, of a particular situation. We desire to control how people think about us. We desire to control um, how we are perceived. So ultimately it's to protect ourselves from feeling bad about ourselves. So it's, 
it comes from a place where we don't feel safe. Yeah. And so when I see perfectionism as a coping, it really helps me to see like, okay, we should not reward perfectionism. We should actually call it out as a coping so that people can have better ways of understanding themselves and feel better about themselves in positive ways rather than as a Yeah, I see. So this misconception that perfectionism is an ideal. It's like, it's okay to be that way. It's good that I'm perfectionistic, but really looking under the surface, maybe, is it being fueled by anxiety and continues to fuel the anxiety? Right, right. Mm -hmm. That's a really good one. You know, just another point that I think is a huge misconception is, um, uh, kind of going along with how we may not outwardly manifest a lot of symptoms. Uh, what I've seen among so many of my clients is that they tend to manifest physically their psychological symptoms. So a lot of psychosomatic issues start coming out. They have back aches and neck tension, shoulder tension. They have IBS issues, um, headaches, migraines. I mean, you name it. I've seen yeah. it. And when they go to um, get checked out physically, there's, there's actually no real cause, no known cause, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I've, it's directly linked to how we're handling our anxiety, our stress, our internal dialogue. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up because I think that this kind of ties into what we're hoping to address today, which is mental health and our mental well-being isn't this small part of us um, put off to the side, right? I think it's easy, especially if a lot of us weren't brought up to look at mental or psychological health. Um, It's like, oh my goodness, did you know that person has these symptoms? And it's something that's shameful or scary even because it's so unknown. But We go to the doctor for physical ailments. We might see an acupuncturist or a chiropractor and get massages. Um, But really, it's this this continuum of health and well-being where it's all integrated. Mm -hmm. So yes, among Asian Americans, we have all these physical symptoms that are telling us, hey, I, I feel your pain, literally. Um, but your emotional pain, your relational pain, it's showing up in the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, sometimes it's not until it's, it's there, felt physically, that we, we attend to it, right? That's right. So sometimes these physical manifestations are actually uh, a great kind of um, light bulb or a signal on your dashboard saying there is something really wrong. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, an interesting thing that happens to me is I'll just go, 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 go. And then um, I'll really know that I'm stressed when I get these little prickly, really itchy things on the palms of my hands. Oh, my uh-huh. And there's no known reason. I'm not allergic to anything, but it's directly correlated to, wow, Megum is really stressed. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's I good. Know. I need to like slow down. So my body's telling me, Megum, you are stressed or you're, you're really, you know, working through a lot of inner things that are hard. Um, So I think physical manifestations are a good indication that it's just a matter of what we do with it. Yes, for sure. Thanks for sharing that. You know, mine is when I, my lower 
neck area starts to feel more tense than usual. I'm like, oh, or if I have tension around my temples because I'm clenching my jaws at night, you know, those are my symptoms. Well, let's move on. So what do you wish our community would understand or know about mental health and well-being? Hmm. I think people um, hear this a lot. Um, I really, really wish we could destigmatize hmm. uh, mental health. So it should not be a shaming thing. Um, when it is stigmatized and when it is seen as a shameful thing to see a mental health professional, what happens is clients wait too long. <laughs> um, similar to um, what happens in the medical world. Uh, I mean, I hear this from my doctor friends all the time. They say that Asian Americans and Asians are, they tend to be the ones that wait way too long, <laughs> that their symptoms have manifested for way too long. And if they had just come in earlier, they would have been able to be more helpful. Yeah, I feel that that's the same way in the mental health world. I wish Asian Americans would come in, um, maybe even to introduce this idea of preventative work, uh -huh. that to see a mental health professional is, is great all the time as a prevention rather than coming in when things are really bad. Yeah. And I, I imagine that part of that, there, there is the stigma itself of like, if there's something wrong with me, my family, it's shameful to go talk about it. There's all this stigma. But then there's this other piece of just access and barriers to care, right? And like mental health and psychological well-being, I feel like they're very Western terms. Mm -hmm. And I think each one of us, whatever our cultural or ethnic identity is, there has already been a term or several terms in our cultural history to direct us to well-being but um i think this idea of mental health feels very foreign and western mm -hmm. and so um i mean we just want people to know that in america's mental health care many people ourselves included are trying to bring down those barriers there are a lot and growing numbers of clinicians who could speak your family's language um, understand cultural issues. So sometimes I feel like it's the fear of how to even reach out to a system I don't understand, right. plus my own personal and family barriers. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've really appreciated is, is working with pastors, partnering with churches yes. as a mental health professional, um, so that these churches are, are promoting uh, mental health care. Um, they're uh, like one, one church that I'm working with, like they are going 50-50 on premarital counseling. So mm -hmm. they, the church foots half the bill. I mean, that's, that speaks volumes for their level of investment in a marriage that is about to start. Mm, that's amazing. I would love uh, Asian Americans to just talk more about their mental health experience. Um, I believe that just talking about it, really, like whether good or bad, yeah. <laughs> just talking about your experience with your therapist, you know, the thing that was helpful or not helpful, insights that you gained. Um, bottom line, if more people talk about their mental health experiences, it will help to normalize that experience for everyone. Yes. Um, oftentimes, like I'll, I'll hear my clients saying, 
you know, I don't want people to know that I'm in therapy because I don't want them to think that there's something wrong with me. Um, but when they are brave and they share it in, with their small group, their community group, um, people have actually told them, oh my gosh, I was really surprised to hear that you're seeing a therapist. You, you look so fine on the outside, but thanks for normalizing it. I think I'm going to go see one too. Yes. Therapist. So it's, it's really helpful. I, I think that could really help to destigmatize mental health. Yeah. So that being a very simple thing that every one of us can do. Um, and I, I share this whenever I teach or give a workshop, but I was in therapy for like 10 plus years with this one therapist I loved and she closed her practice. And then I found another one recently closer to where we moved to. So um, it's, I think it's easy for people to think just like you mentioned, oh, we only go to therapy when it's major crisis, right? Um, but I mean, there, there's a financial piece to all these variables, but I'm, I'm grateful that I've, I've had access to therapists that I could see and whether it's through insurance, but um, it doesn't have to be for crisis only. It could be really just to talk through things that are going on, family related, anything at all. So um, we hope that that's something people will hear and, and just start to be open to. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Megan and I could talk a lot about this. So if people are wondering, where can I get connected to a therapist? I think I could really benefit. There are a number of ways, and it really depends where you live, uh, the sort of community and network that you have. Ask around if there is a way where there's enough openness in your community. Ask people you know talk to local churches and leaders in the churches if they have people that they've been referring to. If you have insurance, go to your insurance panel and um, look up providers because we know that you know financially it could cost a lot. So ideally that it's covered by insurance. Um, what are some websites people can go to, Nikam? Uh, Psychology Today. Okay. Place to start. Um, I believe that you can search by um, by zip code and so many miles out, and it'll pull up all the uh, the psychologists and therapists that are in that area. Yeah. And one of the things I think we really want to encourage people is it's easy to go to a provider and feel like, oh my goodness, they're my provider. They're like the doctor, so to speak, and I'm just this lowly patient. But I always say, when you're finding a therapist, you want to find one that's a good fit for you. And it might take some time. When you make phone calls to ask, they'll probably check in with you about what brings you into therapy. And it's totally okay for you to ask them, How, what's your experience like working with you know, Korean Americans or Filipino Americans. Um, how about issues of spirituality, right? So you're the consumer and so making sure that the person you're going to kind of trust your insides with is going to understand and be respectful and all of those things. So um, it's easy to feel intimidated, but to know that, you know, you're the person who's trying on a very important pair of shoes and they it should fit really well um, and so only you can discern that yeah I love that that idea of the 
the client being a consumer um, because it allows you, it, it opens up the, the freedom to be choosy. Mm-hmm. Um, because like you said, this is way too important and you're, you're sharing so much. So it's time investment and, and money investment, but most importantly, it's your emotional investment. Yeah. So I'd say trust your gut. Uh, you can um, request therapists to meet with you uh, over the phone or sometimes in person for um, for no fee, um, and you can really get a feel for who they are, how they will be in the room. Yeah. Yes, that's a great point. Well, Miga, we had a really great first opening episode with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I know we're just getting our feet wet in this season, but thanks for joining us and thanks everyone for tuning in today. Thank you for tuning in to Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. This episode was edited by Alexander Cathedral and produced by Jason Chu with music by Mark Redito. We'll see you next time and hope that you remember God loves all of you.